0: This is an APTA podcast.
1: I'm Sharon Dunn, president of AVTA, and on behalf of the association, I would like to welcome you to the 12th annual Rothstein Roundtable. I'm honored to be able to introduce this session. The Rothstein Roundtable is, in, is held in honor of Jules Rothstein, editor-in-chief emeritus of PTJ. Those of us who knew Jules say that he never met a point he couldn't argue from both sides. <laughs> That's that's true. Or from other sides, no one had ever thought of. My first encounter with Jules was as a as a young delegate in the back of a motion discussion group, and our our chapter had brought a, a motion to the house that Jules disagreed with. And my name tag was on backwards, so he couldn't he didn't know me, and he couldn't tell who I was. But he just walked by and he said, "Have you heard about this stupid motion?" <laughs> I said, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> so he grabbed my name tag and turned it over, and he said, who are you? And I was like, he's reading my name, and he doesn't know me. I said, I'm, I'm Sharon Dunn. Who are you from? Meaning, who, who, who is your faculty member? Who are your mentors? And I said, I'm from LSU, and Joe McCullough is my boss. He ought to know better than this. So, <laughs> so this was Jules. He pushed us to be better. And he came back on multiple occasions during that House to to ask what had happened with the thoughts behind that motion. He wanted me to be prepared to present the ideas, and he pushed the issue enough that I had to think— on my feet more and learn how to debate in a way that brought the issue and the issue forward for uh, that would be sound and principled so i really at first i was scared to death but in 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 reflection on that experience with jules i understand what he did for our whole profession because how many of you had a conversation like that with jules i'd like to see a show of hands yeah he made a difference so that's the spirit behind the round Roundtable. It's an event that's known for its tradition of taking on timely issues in ways that inspire action and influence the future directions of our profession. My, one of my favorite examples of this discussion was 10 years ago. Should physical therapists practice in acute care settings? And the players that were here having that conversation have left lasting imprints on my mind about preparing physical therapists in that setting, in that environment. We hear a lot about how the healthcare system is changing right now, and you're not just hearing it, you're experiencing it if you're practicing in, in any setting. Maybe that's the point. The change is happening all around us, and there's, a, there's an odd disconnect. A lot of talk about the importance of patient-centered care and about a focus on outcomes, yet all too often our profession, fundamentally patient-centered and built around outcomes, is treated by the system as an afterthought. We could spend days discussing why that is the case, but the important question is how do we change that? Can we change that? What barriers does our profession face in moving physical therapy from a niche to a component of care that's a given? And are those barriers put in front of us solely from the outside, or can we sometimes be our worst enemy? Addressing this issue will take creative thought from every part of our professional world, from education to practice and to policy. It will also require us to think deeply about how data might play into shifting our profession's position in the wider healthcare arena. After all, this is a multilayered problem. It will take all of us working together if we're going to have any hope in solving it. So I'm thrilled to be here for this event. I can't wait to hear what we get to experience today from our panel. And I'm sure, just like previous roundtables, we'll be talking about what was discussed here for many years to come. It's my pleasure now to introduce the moderator of the panel, Dr. Tony DeLito, a contributing editor for PTJ and moderator of the roundtable and excellent dancer, as I experienced last night. So thank you and uh, welcome to the panel.
2: Thanks. Um, I'm going to have the panel uh, introduce themselves uh, real quickly. Um, uh, I'm start with Rob Saper to my left.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is can you hear me? Yeah good afternoon everyone. My name is Rob Saper. I'm a family physician across the street at Boston University and Boston Medical Center. I also do research on back pain, particularly looking at non-pharmacologic Approaches, both PT, yoga, and other things, and uh, Dr. Delito and I have collaborated for a good eight to nine years.
4: Hi, everybody. My name is Jason Benichek. I'm a physical therapist affiliated with the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Florida, and I also have a unique position with Brooks Rehabilitation. Uh, We have a research collaboration between the University of Florida and Brooks Rehabilitation, and I've been collaborating with, with Tony on the TARGET trial.
5: Hello, I'm Adam Goode. I'm from Duke University. I'm a physical therapist and epidemiologist, and um, do spend most of my time working at Duke on projects related to physical therapy and primary care. I'm also a CoStar fellow. I should mention that. Uh, (laughs) Thank you.
6: I'm Jay Irgang. I'm a physical therapist. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Physical Therapy, and I also serve as the scientific director for the Physical Therapy Outcomes Registry. Great.
2: So the you're probably all wondering about this title <laughs> Industrial Revolution. Um let me let me start with uh, what what uh, the the origin of what the, how this came about. Um, we have been uh hearing over and over again uh in this conference as well as uh, over the past few years um, about um how for the how difficult it is to manage patients in a fragmented situation that we have in our healthcare system right now. Uh, Rob and I are uh, co leaders of a large uh, PCORI pragmatic trial. And pragmatic, the most important idea about pragmatic is it's real life. We are trying to implement in primary care what I think is a very simple uh, approach, uh, a stratified approach to managing people with low back pain. And we're having a whale of a time doing this. <laughs> uh, this integration component is a difficult thing to do. Um, and I've now seen it uh, for the first time in my life. I've seen it from the primary care uh, environment's perspective. Okay? And, um, and to me, uh, it's, 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 um, it, it started me to thinking about um, this, in, this term integration and what it really means. And so I started looking around for successful integration uh, in primary care. And lo and behold, uh, Gerard Brennan's wife, Brenda Brennan, uh, is a nurse practitioner who had an article in JAMA, not a bad journal, right, on integrating behavioral health in primary care. And I thought, you know, we we might be able to learn something from Brenda. And I was actually asked Brenda to be on the panel, but she's, has a surfing vacation planned, and she couldn't make it. But I did have extensive conversations with her, you know, about how how did you actually do this? And she said um, it's very simple. We found people with the expertise in behavioral health, and we put them in primary care. And um, and and I thought, wow, you know, that's 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 an interesting concept. You know, the you know you put the people with the expertise in house, and then I thought about. Our experiences in primary care, and I'm wondering how did she do that? You know, how did that, you know, how did that work? How did it do it? And you know, she was very adamant about the fact that if they're not there, it's not integrated. You know, and um, and that again, you know, made me think about the challenges. So. That is where the industrial revolution came up because it would almost be a revolution in thinking to, to actually have that sort of thing happening. And, and, and I'm thinking in terms of integrating musculoskeletal care into primary care. And why am I thinking this? I'm thinking this because our experience tells us that people with spine-related disorders enter the system, a large percentage of them enter the system in primary care. There's nothing we can do about that. That's what patients want to do. Uh, even our own uh, physical therapy, uh, when, we, when the Physical Therapy Association asks patients, we get that response a lot. Patients want to enter care with primary care. Alternatively, they enter care through chiropractic. And my interpretation of this, and then and there's about 20% that enter care all over the place. And my interpretation of this is that the people that want alternatives to uh, allopathic medicine or, or a non-physician will go to the chiropractor. But those that want allopathic would prefer to start in primary care. Now I'm saying that if that's the case, then we need to somehow figure out a way to better manage patients in that in that situation, given you know the, the, the challenges that we face. So I thought what we would do in this in this round table is with that with that framework is talk about what those barriers are. How would we, How would we begin to do this? How would we begin to better integrate musculoskeletal health care in primary care environments because that's the desired path that patients want to take? How would we begin to do it? What would be the barriers? What, What are some of the models we might have, and what are the barriers to doing it? I thought Rob is a perfect person to bring on board because he and I have been struggling doing this in five major institutions around the country. For, you know, two years now and struggling. We're, we're doing it successfully, but it's not it. it this is not um, something. This is much more difficult than I thought it would be. <laughs> All right. I asked Jason to come on board because Jason is part of our target team. Jason also experiences the same sort of uh, issues, but from a different perspective. Um, We are trying to implement a stratified approach to to managing patients with low back pain in primary care. Jason is straddling this. Uh, He's he's the person, one of the main people who instruct our therapists in this psychologically informed physical therapy. But in order to also um, get this referral for this, there has to be some semblance of understanding on the primary care physician's. Perspective, you know what, what's happening with that, and um, so so Jason's here to talk about that and then or to 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 um, lend uh, his two cents about that and the challenges that might come up with that. Adam's on board because um, Adam's doing this. <laughs> He's actually integrating uh, musculoskeletal health in primary care. So when somebody raises their hand and says, "Well, you know, we can't do it because of," Adam can speak. From from the perspective of somebody who's actually doing it um, uh, at, at Duke University, uh, he, he underplayed his his uh, 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 introduction. Um, he's he's actually made you know quite head, he's made quite a bit of headway in this. And then Jason Jay's on board here, um, and it's um, uh, because if this is going to happen, there's two reasons. One is Jay is uh, the scientific director overseeing the registry. And I thought what would it, it, what would ultimately or eventually come up in our discussion is what's the role of the registry in doing this? Um, I think that it, I'm thinking it probably has a role, but also Jay is, a, is the um, uh, director of a PT program, and whatever we discuss and whatever we bring up and whatever actually evolves out of something out of a, out of a if it is a, indeed a revolution or something sooner or later is going to have to be. Taught to our future students, and how does this affect? How would this affect uh, education in, uh, in physical therapy? So that's the background. That's what we're going to try to talk about. I thought I'd, I'd start out with um, with um, asking Rob, um, who's coming from the primary care um, physician uh, or family medicine physician. I, I, sorry, I don't. <laughs> that's that's an important distinction I learned. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I thought I'd start with Rob. What 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 do you see as the as the bar- what do you see as the as the barriers to uh, true integration of musculoskeletal health in in primary care?
3: There are a number of them, and one of them is the knowledge and awareness that primary care physicians have about p- physical therapy. And to illustrate that, I'd like to start with a story. <laughs> um, and the story is about how Tony and I met. <laughs> So about 2009, uh, I uh, was a yoga researcher on back pain, and I had the idea to do a comparative effectiveness study of comparing yoga to physical therapy because physical therapy is the most common non-pharmacologic referral made by physicians for back pain. So I asked around who I should collaborate with, and a lot of times, uh, Tony Delito's name was coming up. So I said, I've got to reach out to this guy, Tony Delito. I reach out to him, and I say, um, Dr. Delito, I want to do a study where I, compare, where I compare yoga to physical therapy. And he said, physical therapy is a profession. It's not a treatment. <laughs> so, I, so I said, what? <laughs> And he said, look, it sounds like you really want to do like an exercise intervention, so I'll help you develop an exercise intervention, and you'll just call it that. And so I sort of went away scratching my head a little bit, and um, clearly he was trying to dissuade me. But I couldn't be dissuaded and I called him back up and I asked him more questions and I learned a little bit more about physical therapy and what it is and the variety of treatments used and the evidence behind it and the evidence not behind it and the variety of adherence to evidence-based definitions. None of that is different than what exists in primary care. And so finally I persuaded uh, him to uh, collaborate with me and work on this um, PT, you know, intervention and make it the most evidence-based intervention we can have. Why am I telling you the story? I'm telling you the story because primary care physicians do not know anything about PT. Okay? <laughs> so am I talking to the choir here? <laughs> they don't understand what you do. They don't understand the different modalities. They don't know about the evidence, they don't understand your notes, Um, (laughs) they don't read your notes when they get them, Uh, and so one of the barriers, and, and I'll share more later, but one of the barriers is about awareness and education. And when the physical therapists, like at my institution, are three buildings away, you know, on the ground floor, and I'm over here on the fifth floor, when is the opportunity to interact? And if the charts aren't in the medical record or can't be read easily, how do we have communication back and forth? So really starting at the very foundational level is about awareness, education, information. And, of course, you know what I've come to learn working on... Now, really, two studies is physical therapists are incredibly skilled at musculoskeletal anatomy, health. They're interested in functional improvement, which is something that family physicians are interested in. I'm incredibly pleased to see the psychologically informed PT emerging because that's very consistent with a family physician's biopsychosocial approach um, and very, very collaborative. But the only reason why I know that is because I crossed the bridge you know, to PT, and the vast majority uh, haven't. Not out of any malevolence or disinterest, but just not the right opportunities.
2: Thanks. And so, um, with with that, um, I'll, I'll follow up. And, and by the way, we did all this initial communication while I was in Kuwait, <laughs> <Just> <laughs> which was actually good because I had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> but well, but anyway, um, uh, I'll follow up with. It. So, is the answer to? Well, I mean, what's the answer? <laughs> uh, you know, is it, it? I know I've heard people say that um, uh, we should be in medical school curricula, and and my I, I don't really I'm not very enthusiastic about that because um, having had uh, a son go through a medical school curricula and and um, and watch watching what they had to do and knowing full well that maybe you'd get. Four hours, six hours, you know, I don't know that that's the answer. <laughs> you know, that um, do you have what, what? I mean, is there any other? Uh, I, and this can be for any of the panels. I mean, what, what what's the answer to that knowledge gap? Because right now, what I, way I see it is, either the patients need to be diverted, which is not a good answer because the patients desire to go to primary care, or. We have to somehow figure out a way to get more people like you to bridge this gap.
4: So I think, uh, you know, Rob really acknowledged some important points and a lot of them had to do with communication, right? A lack of communication between primary care physicians, other physicians, with physical therapists. And I think, you know, what we're starting to find that could potentially be working in our system is that initial communication, um, particularly related to musculoskeletal pain. Because I think a lot of primary care physicians will acknowledge that they are not experts in musculoskeletal pain. and, and, And what happens to most of their patients, right? They could take a couple different routes. Um, they can be referred to physical therapy. Hopefully most of them will be. Um, they can get prescribed medications with some of those medications being opioids. And I think now that we're receiving a lot of national attention, right, pain in general is receiving a lot of national attention. Uh, Rob shared a story, so um, I think I'm going to share a little story as well. Um, as part of my Ph.D. training, I, um, I also... Um, had some training in public health, and my public health colleagues were always confused as to why somebody like me that focused on musculoskeletal pain was in a public health program, because public health isn't really an epidemic. It's not a societal problem, so they so they thought. Um, but it is really recognized now as a, as a, as a national health care problem, and um in terms of attention, I think because of the opioid epidemic, I think now we're, we're really receiving the attention or those patients are receiving the attention that they deserve. So communication, I think, really should be the front line. And as physical therapists, we can really, I think, do a better message in in letting primary care physicians know the services we can provide, the supplemental services in particular, right? You guys have heard about psychological informed practice already. Um, That's really a new intervention strategy that we're, you know, investigating in the target trial. And physical therapists may need some additional training. So I think it's communication is one part, but as Jay will probably talk about um, I think the education part for our clinicians is also important and needs to be acknowledged
2: Adam tell me how are you co- are you communicating
5: <laughs> Yes yeah, yeah, so I, I have to say that I agree with what Rob and Jason have said I, the education uh, is a big component. Um, I have to say that from my perspective, results probably aren 't generalizable they probably will vary because i 've been quite spoiled at Duke where um, for the past four years, we've been creating, building, and evolving clinical models where physical therapists are in the same um, treatment area or examination area as primary care. Um, so that would we would consider that to be a co-located model. Um, but but I have to say that I don't. After working with this and trying to evolve it to an integrated model, I don't know that co-location is enough because we still see a very high non-referral rate to physical therapy, even though they're right there for musculoskeletal conditions, as high as 60 to 65%.
2: So so pl- explain a little bit more about this co-location and yeah. tell me what the difference would be with something other than co-location.
5: Yeah, so what, what we consider to be the co-located model is, just as you mentioned, you took a, a physical therapist. There's a primary care facility. You take them. You put them in there. They are using the same treatment room that the, the primary care physicians use. Their name's on the treatment board. They're getting patients scheduled. Their billing is, is diverted, though. They're billing two separate ways. Um, they may get some warm handoffs um, during the day. They may get some referrals during the day. Um, but they operate separately. They are operating as two di- different disciplines just within the same facility. Okay. Um, so, so,
2: so, excuse, so Brenda would say that's not integrated. That's what you would say on this. But, but yeah.
5: Go ahead. Go. That's what I would yeah. say. That, that, that's more of a co-located model. It's nice. It, it increases proximity to services. Patients may have better access, um, delayed time for referral, things like that. Um, and then we, we've worked on that model. we studied that model in a single clinic. But, again, I, I had a, a strong clinical champion, a uh, primary care physician, that that push that forward she is the medical director and she used to be a physical therapist before she became a primary care physician and so she carried that flag for me into that clinic and then i have uh, the director of primary care research at duke is done work in back pain so she also assists so when I, i've been quite spoiled in that aspect and what we try to do now because we've seen that it's helpful it's nice to have the, the pt in the same area they can collaborate communicate Pull, you know, can you take a look at this patient? Sure, I don't have anybody here, and so forth. Um, but we've also seen a lot of non-referrals for those musculoskeletal uh, conditions and possibly moving into the integration, more integrated route where the, you have a system and this provider comes in and uses their skill within that system, kind of deviates things away from other providers in that system and, and uses that skill for the betterment of, the, of that system. Kind of, So that physical therapist would be more of a front-line person for that musculoskeletal condition. Like the physical therapist would see them first um, and maybe only see the physical therapist first. And that's the model we've been implementing. Um, so my barriers are a little bit different than uh, others' barriers may be. Uh, our barriers are things like working with the scheduling hub to make sure that people get on the right schedule, and um, staffing to make sure that they know that the physical therapist receives the msk patients first and so forth um because co-location alone my my thought is that and this is only a single clinic it's only a single system that it may not be enough to really solve a lot of the
3: problems With
2: I, i've heard the, the the same exact argument from people who have uh co-located Co PTs, and there may be people who have different experiences with it, but it's but it but let's for the sake of argument move forward and say it's not integrated. So, Rob, what do you think of uh, PT screening, seeing people, maybe you not even seeing the patient?
3: Yeah, so I, I think co is is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And uh, I'd like to take on this behavioral health example yeah. because I think the physical therapy profession can learn a lot from there. Integrated behavioral health is is huge right now. There's a lot of funding for it. It's happening certainly around Massachusetts. Um, and it is really challenging. You know why? Because therapists, behavioral therapists, social workers, psychologists, are used to seeing patients for 50 minutes and blocking it out and scheduling it and then having them come the next week and then the next week. They're also used to having strict rules of confidentiality from other practicing you know, physicians. Um, and they're not familiar with how a primary care clinic works, what's the tempo, what are the stresses on the physicians, how things are scheduled, et cetera. And so the first six months of our behavioral health integration, I think, was very rocky, and I would say um, unsuccessful. And the way it started to take a turn for the better, which I think we can learn a lot from, is that you really, truly have to integrate them onto the team. So, for example... At a practice meeting, the therapists are there. Um, at case discussions, the therapist is there. Um, when um, uh, uh, challenging cases are presented, physical therapy cases are presented. Therapists educate the docs about uh, PT and uh, back pain uh, and vice versa. So. We actually have to get off our computers. We actually have to talk to each other at a local level, you know, at the clinic to to just understand. Because primary care doctors right now, we're getting killed. We're not getting killed. We're stressed out. We're burnt out. We're leaving family medicine. We're leaving primary care. Because there's just this enormous complexity of our patients that we have to take care of, plus the administrative uh, burden and documentation burden. So – if the if a physical therapist can figure out how to help me and take something off of my plate to make my life easier, and then of course have better patient outcomes, that's you know that's the way to go. Solve your problem. Yes,
2: <laughs> go into the environment, and solve the problem. So, so um, what would be the, the uh, from? And I hate to pick on you, but why don't you do it? <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, is it a financial issue? I mean. Um, um, I mean, is it possible to treat a physical therapist like you would a nurse practitioner or anybody else on your team?
3: You know, absolutely. Um, you know, it, 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 it's doable, um, but one has to, you know, I would have to, and, and, you know, I should probably do this, is you really have to cross boundaries, you know. So I have to go to Karen Matty, who heads up our rehab, and let's try to figure out how we can have one of your therapists over in our clinic on... You know, and it can, of course, be five days a week, right? Because she's trying to figure out how to staff the inpatient, the outpatient. And so how can she get a therapist over to my clinic and make sure that therapist is used enough? You know, so maybe it's Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then we have to figure out the billing and the charting and all those sort of things. But um, it is it is doable.
4: And Go ahead, Jason. I'm sorry. So, um... I'm just going to add to what Rob said, and I think it's very important, but a lot of times it doesn't get acknowledged, right? For for a scenario like that to occur, I think, you know, systems need support from executives um strong support and without that support we can talk about this till the cows come home but it's 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 never going to really work out so um you know again i don't mean for this to be all about brooks rehabilitation but um we're, we're, we're lucky because we do have very strong support some of you that were at the CoStar star meeting the other day heard michael spiegel talk um Michael Spiegel. Without Michael Spiegel, I, I probably wouldn't be up here today. Tony wouldn't know who I was, and so it's—I can't acknowledge that. Um, you know, the executive support of a system is, is definitely needed for for things like this to happen or to be successful.
2: So, um, again, w- w- one of the things that always strikes me is that um, as soon as we begin talking about this model, the first thing that comes to mind is how does that physical therapist bill in that model? And, um, and, and is it feasible um, at all in anybody's mind to not think about that? And I mean, when I said bring up the idea of having a therapist in your, in, in your environment, my thought was to bring the therapist in the environment as you would an NP or as you would a PA. It's a cost of doing business. If, a, if such a large proportion of your business is musculoskeletal, now we know that it is. And it's and there's so, and there's so much room for improvement in the management of those patients, you know. Why why couldn't they just be a cost of business, just the cost of doing business? You know, you, you you turn around and you hire a therapist like you would a PA.
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
5: Adam, so w- when we started our, working on our model. Uh, three or four years ago, we it was started as a as a service. As a um, we have a physical therapist here. Why don't you use them if you would like? Uh, there was no billing. It was they're here a few half days a week or a couple half days a week, and um, they can triage for us. They can or for the the primary care physicians, and they can um, assist with helping to interpret musculoskeletal complaints. Um, but as you can imagine, that, that model is not sustainable if they're not somebody paying the bill. And so after about a year of that, it moved to where they were starting to bill for their services in the same way they would bill if they were in an outpatient facility as having a referral and doing an evaluation and treatment. And if they needed more treatment than that, they would get referred to a physical therapist off-site. Um, because, and, and that has worked. That, that has sustained the model that they could work there and bill there and still be co-located in that facility. Um, but the extent of trying to change that billing practice, we, we haven't tried because it really we, – we've been satisfied with, with, with that approach to the billing process. So – but models beyond hiring a physical therapist um, or a model to hire a physical ther- – the primary care facility hiring, it would be a challenge in an academic medical center like ours where um, – there's primary department of primary care, department of physical therapy. That's probably the more of a barrier there than it is to um, do what we're doing now and say, hey, can you send us somebody and they can bill? Like that would be much more reasonable.
2: So, so Jay, you're starting to hear this noise about um, therapists in primary care settings, whether it's co-located or whether it's um, uh, you know truly integrated, or you know, and, and I don't want to leave the idea of pursuing the, the true integration, but I also want to stop and pause a little bit to say, um, uh, what's that, what's that due to a training program?
6: So I think um, when you're looking at um, working in that type of a setting, you know, the therapist has got to be involved in triage of the patient. So that Carry certain things in terms of being able to identify red flag, yellow flags, and so forth. And you know, as those evolve in the intake and the examination, there may need to be rapid communication uh, with the physician and looking at what's going to be the best avenue for managing that patient. Do they need medical management? Do they, you know? Will rehabilitation, physical therapy management suffice, or is this something that, with a little bit of education, they can take care of themselves? And I think we need to ensure that that happens in the training of our physical therapist. And then from for those individuals that are appropriate for physical therapy management, I think using some type of a classification-based treatment system that classifies patients, or are you having to deal with symptom management? Or are you having to deal with um, uh, neuromotor control or optimization of function? And being able to quickly classify individuals there, realize what you can do quickly uh, while the patient is there. Because, you know, <clears throat> I think one of the, um, one of the uh, thoughts is when a patient comes to see a physician, they want something then. They're, they want to walk out of the office with something. And the easy thing is a medication, is an X-ray, is an MRI, or something along that line. So the physical therapist has got to be involved in that and giving the patient something that they value that is a quick fix that's going to help their problem immediately. And then, as Jason talked about, You know, if that's something that is going to need follow-up management, you know, can you do that within that primary care clinic, or do you need to, you know, refer that uh, to another physical therapist in the system or um, in another town? Entry-level skill. I think a lot of it is, but the higher-order things, uh, it's probably going to require some additional. Uh, training, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion uh, at this meeting here with the new uh, proposed uh, clinical education uh, pathway, and I could see that, uh, you know, the training for this, um, you know, be in a, a post-professional or residency uh, type of uh, of environment, and um, you know that that could be a, a, a new area of uh, of specialty. So, so, Rob, you're, you're, yours, yours is a
2: teaching hospital. You tell me that you have resident graduations coming up tonight, right? <laughs> and um, how comfortable are you? First of all, how how amenable would you be to participating in that training?
3: W- with PTs.
2: With PTs. Like, he's, you know, yeah. Jay has a residency program. He needs to yeah. place people in a primary care environment.
3: Well, here, here's the good news, is that... Um, There is a movement within medicine for interprofessionalism. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not heard PTs in that conversation. Excuse me. But there are uh, many efforts to uh, co-educate with nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, licensed clinical social workers, nutritionists. And so I think that that is a, a bandwagon that PTs, you know, can join. So, for example... Uh, when we do inpatient rounds, we have a uh, member of our pharmacy faculty uh, join us on rounds with two or three pharmacy students. And they contribute greatly as we go from patient to patient on medication issues. So you could see a similar type of situation like that with, um, with PT, whether it be in the inpatient or the outpatient. But I'd, li- I'd like to second your point that being able to give something to that patient now, is important, and I know in PT sometimes your first visit is really an evaluation, right? And and the patient's not feeling they're getting something, and so I know there's no quick fix, but I think that that's something very important to take in, and um, maybe each patient should not get a series of eight visits, you know, or mm-hmm. ten visits uh, for their treatment. Um, You know, the downside is in an academic health center, there are these things called departments and divisions. (laughs) And um, uh, to use the behavioral health example, again, it's a little crazy-making. So we have a clinic. We want to bring in some licensed clinical social workers. We interview them, but we don't hire them. They have to be hired by the behavioral health department um, because – what would an academic health center be if PTs can hire physicians and physicians can hire PTs? God forbid, right? So, um, so that kind of rigidity of the structure is an impediment, but uh, it's surmountable.
2: Adam, do you guys, uh, you do you see any of this? These these as a, from a advanced training. I mean, are you seeing students in your environments now? Are students going through those experiences?
5: Uh, well, not directly. Um, because we have physical therapists that are in the primary care setting, well, this one primary care setting, they are clinical instructors. And so they may have a student with them while they're in the, this clinic for that period of time. But those are um, entry-level students, and it's part of their clinical experience. Um, it's not set aside as a special primary care clinic. Okay.
6: So so, uh, we've had a couple of opportunities um, to integrate some of our students into a primary care setting. And the first was a few years ago where we had our students uh, in the uh, student health clinic. And uh, that worked out really well because, again, the individuals, the physicians and nurse practitioners running student health really didn't have a, a good understanding of what could be done. Uh, for um, these patients with musculoskeletal complaints. So it, it essentially got to the point where musculoskeletal complaint, okay, you're going to see the physical therapist. Uh, but that was set up at a different time. The, the, the student had to come back. And I thought that was a pretty valuable uh, learning opportunity for our students because they had you know, one patient every 20 minutes. Um, you know, there was one faculty member there with two, three, or four students Managing all of that and, and making sure that there's adequate supervision, and I, and I think our students learned um, how, uh, some valuable skills and how to function in that type of an environment, which is totally different than the hour-long, you know, evaluation and you know, eight visits uh, afterwards. And then just this past year, we had a similar experience where uh, we um, were able to provide services in a. Uh, uh, community center uh, pro bono pro uh, bono center that um, is also staffed by uh, physicians as well as medical students and I thought that was a, a good learning experience for our students as well so, so
2: it 's kind of interesting isn 't it? Um, you have these environments that um, run on a shoestring, no money I mean our student health services i participated in that um, it was truly they, they were they were getting physical therapy for free. And um, and that because there wasn't really funding for any for that, and um, uh, and it was pro bono, but a model a model emerged that was everyone was happy with. Now, obviously, it's not sustainable, and um, and and I think the, what it gets to the point of is um, uh, in my mind anyway is um, the Birmingham Free Clinic, which is the other clinic you're talking about, is just that it's a Birmingham Free Clinic, and. All of a sudden there 's no barriers to this integration <laughs> it's it 's getting done it 's not sustainable and I understand that it 's not sustainable but it's, it's, it it does remove a lot of these barriers people are talking about um, you 'll I guess why my, my question is are those the opportunities to go in and test these models obviously going in in, in some way where uh, at least you can get some funds for sustainability up front but allow you the freedom to build the model without these barriers, without these silos and other barriers in place, <clears throat> even billing barriers, right? Is that an option? Is that something? I'm, I mean, I'm, am I, am I a pie in the sky? Yeah, is, that, is that something to explore? Because right now what I'm hearing is that um, even with limited approaches to do these sorts of things, good things happen. You know, the, the, even with a co-location, it seems to be better than the complete fragmentation. Obviously, we'd all like the full-blooded, full inter, uh, 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 integration, but we seem to be in, in uh, models that put significant barriers in the way to get those done. Um, or should we be looking to other, to other approaches?
3: I I think it's a great idea, and I think Monday I'm going to give a call to Sargent College, you know. (laughs) Um, We've done, uh, for a number of years, an arrangement with the New England School of Acupuncture, which is one of the oldest schools of acupuncture, and they come once or twice to our clinic. Just like you say, four students, one faculty member, they see patients, they provide acupuncture. It's completely for free. It's off the books. It's pro bono. Um, Patients love it. Uh, the doctors love referring, and the students, of course, are getting a great training opportunity. So I certainly think that that's a way to sort of prime the pump, per se, but I think it'll be key to, it's key to collect outcomes. Uh, which we've been doing to then try to justify a, you know, a greater a greater integration. I, I think that you as physical therapists, you have this incredible opportunity because like, like Tony said, when, you know, when, when someone comes into the office in pain, they, they want something tangible. They really do. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of the stresses on the system, the knowledge of the doc, um, very often it's a script. Um, maybe it's a referral to PT, but you know, there may be a delay. You know, in our system we're a safety net hospital, there's a long delay. <clears throat> but you guys uh, are doing something that very few healthcare practitioners are doing now, which is touching patients. Seriously. And so, um, you know, patients are open to what they're exposed to. So a lot of them are going in, sure, there's a few that they want an opioid or they feel like they have to get an MRI. But the majority just want to have less pain and want to be helped. And, um, you know, so I, so I think certainly the opportunity is, is there, and we have to capitalize on it. Um, I will say one thing that's a barrier, but it's a surmountable barrier, is that in primary care – The focus is on diabetes, it's on reducing cholesterol, it's did your mammogram rate go high enough? And Tony and I have talked for quite a while about this, that pain as a metric, as a quality metric, it's not on the dashboard, at least as of yet. It's absolutely in the view of health insurers. And I think that that's going to drive things and it's going to be more and more on on the dashboard. So I think if it's, you know, for, for, for the PT profession, for the for the acupuncture profession, for the chiropractor profession, we have to start pushing pain as a central quality issue. And even though the opioid so-called crisis or epidemic has increased the um, visibility of this issue, the focus is in on treatment of substance use, limitation of opioids. It hasn't been squarely... Uh, 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 at a very key missing link, which is the management of pain, which is what we're all interested in doing here.
4: So I I will say that, you know, the National Pain Strategy and even the new guidelines for opioid prescriptions do specifically indicate physical therapy as a non-pharmacological intervention. So although it may not be on, you know, everybody's radar, um, I think we are getting acknowledged as a a really beneficial non-pharmacological provider. The other thing that Rob mentioned about the um, other comorbidities that are a lot of times um, our patients with musculoskeletal pain that come in, that they're also experiencing comorbidities. And that's something that we really haven't talked about. We've talked about red flags, right, systemic involvement. But some of these other comorbidities, okay, um, you know, they're appropriate for treatment by a primary care provider or primary care physician. So I I think a lot of times when we talk about these integrated models, um, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room is, well, I'm not going to see these patients. You're basically taking patients away from me. And I think when we talk about musculoskeletal pain, um, the big picture is that that's not really the case, okay? Um, there are some patients that can probably benefit from only, let's say, non-opioid-based medications. There are some patients that probably would benefit even from surgery, okay? But I think a vast majority of them would benefit from physical therapy. So I think, you know, collectively, how we present this message to the primary care um, Physicians, I think that can help us out in terms of how to kind of develop these models.
2: So you, you, you touched on it a little bit, and I want to drive go back to this. Um, uh, uh, and I'll and I'll. I think I'll pick on Adam first. Um, um, how do you evaluate? I mean, you started this model, right? And it was it was different. Somebody decided that this would be good to do it's nice that you have a primary care physician that was a PT that's great you know it didn't you didn't take much convincing <laughs> how do you how do you know if this is working what you, what are you doing to, to to what are your metrics to say that this is successful or more successful than if you didn't have co-location
5: yeah so just uh, um, that's a great question uh, just to back up uh, to your other point about uh, starting in um, these models in clinics where billing isn't um, the primary concern, um, that's how we started, was um, this clinic had a lot of uninsured um, that were coming through the door, so there was an opportunity there for us to uh, work in different models of care. And so, of course, there's no billing, so the hospital was saying, sure, you can do what you like. So that, that's kind of how we got started with this, this model. But this, this clinic sees over 5,000 patients per year, so it's not only uninsured um but you know that is a, a a way to think about you know trying these different types of models where you're not hindered by the billing um, and so forth because um you know now that we are able to bill and we've generated that model um, that's worked uh, really well um, but evaluation of, of what we're what we're doing we um basically. Uh, use electronic health record we've uh, developed some uh, retrospective observational studies where we have a period of time where we know the therapist was in there i can go into the ehr and i can pull all the patients that they've seen i can retrospectively look at the outcomes from more hard outcomes related to opioid prescriptions because they have to be generated through the EHR. Um, things like emergency department visits by those patients for a musculoskeletal complaint in this around that same time maybe in a year Um, Costs, uh, charges that were made, uh, those are obtained through our finance department. And so we can look at the the patients that were seen on-site by that therapist within a period of time, and then also the patients that were referred off-site. So they got a a hard script or electronic referral, and they went to a physical therapist off-site by their choosing. And so we can look at the difference of does it make a a difference to have a co-located PT versus having an off-site referral and so and we do see some great advantages for opioid prescriptions and imaging and um, emergency department visits um, those are all benefited from this co-located model um, some of the challenges related to that is there's the, you know from a research standpoint it's a it's an observational study and there's a lot of self- selection going on um, so people may be different that that want to choose an on an on-site model but that's how we've worked around the, the hard research design by using an observational retrospective approach and looking at descriptive data and um, observational data, just a more of a quality improvement type of, of approach.
2: And, and who sees that? Who sees that value? Who actually looks at it and says this is value, besides you?
5: Well, that, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what we've been spreading the message about. And and we did that recently because we wanted to, to try more hard, uh, researches on an RCT in this model, so we applied for funding internally through the CTSA. And um, there's a group known as the Duke uh, Institute for Health Innovation. It's a systems group. They came to the presentation because it's part of the process. If your grant gets scored well enough, then you go to um, a, a, public, um, a presentation to the CTSA, and then um, the Duke Health Innovation group showed up, and they, so they saw some of the data. And uh, became very interested because costs were decreasing. That's the main reason. But um, but they're interested in, this, in these different clinical models that we were coming up with. And so that's in a roundabout way how we were getting the message out. Um, we were saying this is working. Does it work? Can, does it work in our more strenuous design? And can we uh, think about other clinics to be involved? We have a single clinic here. Um, so you know we we were trying those mechanisms, thinking about research but uh, it just so happens that some of the administrators showed up because they had heard um, in the grant review that this was an interesting model that uh, could be, because we have uh, 30, Mm -hmm. 35 primary care clinics in our consortium and a lot of about 10 or 15 PT clinics, and some of those clinics are now alongside the primary care clinics. And um, could we do some more co-location and see if we can – Look at costs around the um, whole health system. Which so,
2: so somebody in your system saw that using less services within Duke was actually beneficial.
5: Yeah, and <laughs> and to go back to previous comments that um, you know the executive champion and um, DHI or the Duke Innovation for Health Duke Institute for Health Innovation is that it's set up by the chancellor and the president of uh, Duke Hospital and and. The, that's the champions you want for yeah. you know, if you're yeah. thinking about a model. So yeah. again, results probably aren't typical. Um, it just so happens that it was the right time, right place for us. And but you need that to to really be successful in those those models.
2: So um, Jake, oh, the the reason I wanted to talk, and this is kind of a nice lead-in to the registry, um, is that. How do you see it? Do you see it, the natural role of a registry in something like this?
6: Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, you know, I think it all comes down to the issue of value, right? And value is going to be the ratio of the quality of care, or the patient experience that's provided, uh, divided by the cost. And the downstream cost, prescriptions, MRI, injections, surgery, they can probably be gotten either from the hospital system or from a, a payer mm-hmm. uh, claims database. But the other thing that, that that I think is important is that we have to measure what the patient thinks uh, about it. And that's where we have to incorporate, you know, our patient-reported outcome measures. And when you think about it, uh, you know, there's a lot of implementation issues that we can get into, and I know you've gotten into with Target, about how you collect patient-reported outcomes in a primary care office. And uh, ideally, that would be done before they're roamed, uh, you know, in the, in the waiting area. Uh, but a lot of times you don't know what the real problem is until they get back to the room. So I think that's going to make using uh, condition-specific or region-specific outcome measures uh, very difficult. And I think we've got to start to look at some other... Uh, outcome measures um, such as, you know, the promise or the AMPAC or something like that that are applicable to a wide variety of, uh, uh, of patients. Uh, I think that yeah. measurement needs to really be multidimensional. I think obviously physical function and pain are critical, uh, but you can't forget about some of the other uh, comorbidities like anxiety or depression. And there are now uh, computer-based um, computer adaptive um, methods of collecting this data that can all be done in a relatively um, short period of time. So I think, you know, collecting those um, and somehow incorporating that uh, in ru- routine practice uh, for the patients that are coming in would be helpful. Uh, ideally, Uh, All this information could be fed into a registry so that you could look at uh, what the outcomes are for patients managed in this manner versus managed in a different manner. Um, It would also be interesting is if there could be interprofessional uh, registries. And uh, fortunately, the vendor that APTA uses um, has that potential. Uh, where they serve as the vendor for about 20 different uh, professional societies. And it it might be possible uh, to link information uh, from, uh, let's say, uh, I think um, uh, the physical medicine rehab group uses the same vendor. And it might be possible to link information from the PT registry to an APMNR registry to American College of Rheumatology registry I'm not sure where the primary care or family practice physicians are, but if they're all participating in a, in a similar registry, then you could start to do um, you know a lot of meaningful uh, health services research with that
2: so Rob, I'll go back to this um, uh, ideas now we're going to kind of recenter ourselves in primary care, <laughs> okay, and uh, how do we better integrate musculoskeletal health um, It sounds like uh, uh, maybe not in your, well, maybe in your situation, Um, if you could um, change a model tomorrow and um, some of your barriers were to get broken down, um, how would you evaluate that in your system? What would be the, are are, are these all, all of these things ringing true? Because I know Boston Medical Center is a little bit different in terms of the, the way it's set up. I mean, what would value be? to your system.
3: So evaluation is tricky with musculoskeletal pain. With diabetes, the hemoglobin A1c you can pull from the clinical data warehouse. If you're looking at mammogram rates, it's simple. Uh, The problem is that that data, like you're describing, is not routinely collected. Um, We're starting to collect patient-reported outcomes in depression, Um, But that's just depression. So I I, I think your idea of moving towards a Promise 19 or Promise 29 across the board is good. We'll give up some of the specificity we like from an Oswestry, but we'll capture all the major domains so that you can go back and look to see how effective these are. I think until that happens, realistically, we have to look at proxies and, and cost so we 're in a difficult time right now because we 're in between fee for service and global payments right and it 's a very uncertain time in medicine. Um, but I think uh, you know so one day the our CEO is saying you know you, you, got to do more PT, more injections, more MRIs for more money, and then if I present data that shows that we're saving MRIs, that's actually not a good thing. But of course, once the switch turns, that it's global payments, then that's going to be the greatest thing. So I think physical therapy and all of us in primary care, we just have to plan for that because that's going to happen. And um, that is going to be, you know, what's going to be value uh, ultimately to the hospitals and the CEOs, and that's lower cost and cost savings. So to do that, I, I think the portal of entry is a great idea of being PT because that's going to really take the load off us uh, docs. And um, we know from, you know, some emerging data from, from health insurers that when the portal of entry is, is the physical therapist at the start, the uh, subsequent cost in utilization is way down compared to seeing me and certainly compared to seeing an orthopedist. So I think um, trying to move those patients when they call up and schedule, if they're calling up for a musculoskeletal pain, to PT would be a good idea. So that really makes the PT sort of the primary care provider of musculoskeletal health. This is not such a bad thing.
2: <laughs> yeah. well, I, I think you're good in the argument you know, in, here. In, in concert with us. You know, so. <laughs> but but um, do we have to wait for this? I mean, I've been waiting oh, for this. Oh, so this. wait for global payments? No, we just it. have to
3: start now. No, we have yeah. to start now because otherwise we're going to be constantly being torn.
2: So are you having le- I, I mean, I, it, it, we're from um, also a health system that... Is a little bit schizophrenic. Um, they they uh, volume one day and quality the next day, um, and it's it's um, and it's difficult. I mean, it does get in the way of models like this. Um, uh, clearly, it does. Uh, models like more integration, more efficiency, because efficiency translates to they're not charging, they're not bringing as much money, and I, I I fully understand that. So so I my, I, I guess that. Um, uh, you know one approach would be to um, to to look at environments where no one cares anyway no one about the money component i mean there's there's need there's high need there's inability to pay and there's we know we're going to have to take care of patients in these environments and maybe that's the place that we should be focused on to test models and, but provided there is an evaluation component to that. Now, even though these, you know, um, uh, even though these environments many times, uh, just because the insurance isn't what it is, you know, everywhere else, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not costing money, you know. And and um, so the. So the value proposition can be put forth in these in these environments, and and maybe maybe that's where we should be focused until this switch occurs. You think?
3: Um, my question for you: What's happening at the, the Kaiser's and the Group Health and these large health systems, where obviously the money's important, but it's it uh, you know it's really about efficiency and, and reduction of cost and and value. Well.
2: What I don't know. I can't tell you for sure about Kaiser. I can only tell you about our system, and our system is a integrated delivery finance system. And we've seen movement toward, um, huge movements toward quality within the past uh, uh, year or so, year or two, when our integrated payer became a larger and larger proportion of how we were getting paid. And... Um, and when that happens, and the money's going from the left-hand pocket to the right-hand pocket, you see a shift, and and you do see. There's no question. We see uh, a movement toward uh, toward quality, but we don't see the switch turn. <laughs> we still are. We are still billing other insurance companies, and you know, and and so it's um, so so. And I, I don't know. It's my gray hair. Or it must be my gray hair. Um, but but. Um, I'm getting very impatient <laughs> because I, I, you know, I, I see um, models like Adam talks about. I see our own experiences with some of the other, um, uh, you know, we, we make these moves toward these more integrated models. They seem to be very successful. Um, they do seem to provide value, depending on who, what, 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 uh, what the perspective is of people. Um, but, but we can't seem to implement them more widely. Uh, we, have, we have the barriers are implementing them more widely. This is the time we're um, in the Rothstein roundtable where we ask for some um, questions and experiences from the audience. Uh, the microphones are there. Um, there's, one, there's, one, there's one caveat here. I'm going to try something a little bit different. Um, I, I get a little frustrated when it jumps from one thing to another thing to another thing. If When someone asks a question, there seems to be a a discussion on it. I'm going to let somebody else who wants to do a follow-up jump in the front of the line. (laughs) Okay, we're going to try that this year. We'll see how that works. So questions. Bill.
7: Hi. uh, My name is Julie Starr. I teach at the Physical Therapy Program at Sargent College at Boston University, and I welcome your call. (laughs) Um, I have implemented physical therapy in three different types of um, settings like we're talking about. They've all been inpatient, but one is at a pediatric facility that didn't have PT. One was um, in the uh, emergency room, and one was in the intensive care unit. Now, they're all inpatient, but it took a champion to get it started. It took um, getting the evidence to prove that it worked. And then it needed a huddle every morning to say what's going to happen today, so, call me.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Bill. So I'm um, I'm have a comment about awareness or lack of awareness on the physician's part, which may not be quite in line with the first comment. So, are you going to stick to your guns? Is that how you want to do the Q and A? No, go, go. Go? Okay, good. All right, go. Thank you. Well, in terms of physician awareness of PT or lack of, uh, a couple observations based on 40 years of trying to help increase awareness. Um, any inroads I've ever made have been related to patient care, evolving around the patient. Even in the classroom setting, I've had lots of opportunities to teach, uh, lecture to medical students or residents, and the first couple years I did it, I had my slide tray in with slides from the guide to PT practice and list of practice settings, and you know, eyes were glazed over within, within five minutes, including mine, I'm sure. Uh, the third time I went in to do this, after five minutes, I thought, you know, I need to try a different approach. So I asked the group of maybe, there were 25 in the room, anybody have low back pain? Of course, somebody raised their hand. And I said, would you be willing to allow to be a patient, and I do a demo for you for the class, um, and the person agreed, I had the other 20 come up around the front of the room, I did a history exam, educated treatment, and that was, that's been my approach since then in that classroom. So I've got a lot more mileage out of it than the standard slideshow I used to do. In um, more in a clinical setting, and, and some of this was mentioned, attending rounds is a great opportunity, again, whether it's in an inpatient or outpatient setting, uh, around patient care. Um, and this takes effort. Um, Again, I've worked in, in facilities where the physician's primary referral source was down the hallway. I knew their schedules. I knew the last patient was scheduled for 11.30 in the morning. I knew when they were eating pizza for lunch, around 12.15, 12.30. That's when I tried to go back there and talk to them about a patient we were collaboratively working with. At the end of the day, I knew when their last patient was scheduled. I knew when they were dictating notes. Pro bono clinics, that was mentioned as well. It's a great opportunity as long as the students' different disciplines are seeing patients together, and as wrap-up rounds, they're together. They don't split off into their separate groups. That, that's a waste of time uh, in terms of what we're talking about here. And then uh, last, I don't wish ill on anybody, but... I was happy when one of our physicians hurt their back or neck or knee, and they could be a patient of mine. Um, I wanted to help everybody, but I really wanted to help them and educate them. And you know, they were a patient, but I got in kind of who
3: physical therapists are or like to be. Tony, can I speak to you? Yeah, please. I I think it's great comments. Um, Everyone talks about evidence-based medicine, right? And uh, to get credibility when I give talks, you know, I throw up the slides, as you're saying, and bullet, uh, all this sort of thing. But the real truth is what you described, is that what persuades people and and physicians is experiential, right? And so that experience can be uh, the physician's low back pain episode being treated by you. That would be the most direct. But it can also be the experience of a patient of mine being treated by you um, and the patient coming back to me and telling me about the positive experience, you coming down the hall while we're eating the pizza at lunch and, and talking about the case. These type of uh, contextual uh, patient care experiences this is I think what really changes the individual physician 's mind uh,
8: Hello <clears throat> hello yes excuse me uh, i 'm Chris Barnes from the University of Utah. Uh, I had two comments really uh, one um, uh, so this is this whole topic is completely my phd right now so uh i'm (laughs) super psyched to to hear everything that's been said um i just wanted to tell everybody uh that uh i'm at the huntsman cancer hospital and i am a clinically integrated pt in a, a cardiothoracic surgical clinic doing exercise programs before and after uh surgery and we uh just got funded starting july 1 for a big study doing a um a A intervention study basically saying, you know, comparing standard care to me, uh, treating and uh, working with people and following up on mobility issues throughout their course of care. So that's one thing. Uh, Speaking to the billing specifically, uh, we've got another PT integrated into a BMT clinic working with people uh, around um, stem cell transplants uh, for uh, blood uh, hematological cancers. And uh, I'm not billing because I'm on a study, uh, but he is billing. And so uh, it took, uh, you know, the the, uh, the the clinic physicians to really want to have a PT there and start to push back against any barrier that came in their way, and then to have uh, real strong leadership from um, the rehabilitation uh, leaders in the in the in the the university um, uh, health system to you know coordinate to say, okay, we want this to happen, and then to kind of. You know, Use, use the administrative kind of uh, magic tricks to say, okay, you know where can we move a PT? How can we get uh, you know this to fit you know into the the the, the space that's available you know to um, to for billing and, and you know that, that that kind of thing HR and all that business so um yeah, it is possible, but you, you, you have to have people who really, really care. Um, and we did it once, and now we're planning on doing it as much as we can across the, the cancer hospital, and then pushing out to the rest of the health system.
2: So, curiously, are you employed by the practice plan, or are you employed by the rehab services? I'm a
8: PhD student, so. Oh, I'm, so, but, I'm but an, I, well, what's your compatriot? Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. My, my funds come, you know, from the, uh, the academic side.
2: Right, but your compatriot who's hired—he yeah,
8: is an employee of the health system.
2: Of the health system, yes. But is he? Do you, is he with the practice plan, or is he with the the, the physicians, or is he employed by the rehab?
8: He's, he's through rehab. Yeah, okay, so it is it is revenue. It is cost neutral okay. to the clinic. Uh, he is billing through rehab, yeah. just like every other outpatient therapist yeah. uh, uh, in the system. Um, yeah. And so that's you know a very a strong value proposition when you go yeah. to a physician to say, listen, this is going to cost you nothing because yeah. we're billing and we're we're self-sufficient. It's
2: it's, it's a it's a great thing you bring up because I, I I mean in my own experience I don't think rehab is is really integrated well in cancer. Right. Uh, you know and um and it and you you bring up a good point to do it. Um I find that um. Uh, in primary care, for some reason or another, it's a much more difficult not yes. to crack. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the population really,
8: is quite yeah, heterogeneous. It yeah, but quite difficult.
2: Yes. You know, it may be the same solution. I don't know. You, you know,
8: um, <laughs> you, you spoke to putting, uh, you know, putting people in place and then mm-hmm. letting them do what they do. Uh, I think the solution is going to be, you know, it's 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 uh, simple but not easy, right? So, yeah, uh, you, you get you get the PT into the room, right? Uh, and things good things happen. How do we get everybody else to get out of the way of getting the PT into the room? Is the real nut to crack, yeah. and, uh, and that's essentially what I study now. So, and, and your so approach
2: is similar to what Brenda told me. She didn't ask for permission. Right.
8: right. She just did it. Exactly.
2: Which, and, uh, which I, 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 it's a motto I've right. lived by. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone, anyone else want to comment? Uh, next.
9: My name's Ivan Matsui. I'm from uh, the from California, and you know, usually. I hate to stand behind these uh, speakers out in the audience, but I feel compelled because just uh, a couple hours ago, next door, uh, we had a panel discussion of a white paper, a a perspective paper, that uh, the APTA asked us to uh, put together, which we presented, which was titled, uh, I think, PT and Primary Care. But uh, a lot of these things we had had discussed right next door, um, and I guess... The Kaiser experience, we have been in primary care since uh, the early 90s, uh, I think about 94. Um, and uh, in our particular particular facility in Union City, we got something going ourselves, but it merged with a whole region um, uh, directive that, or uh, idea. Uh, Kaiser is at this point uh, a 4 million member uh, organization, has probably 7,600 uh, physicians, 700, over 700 therapists. Uh, not all of which is in primary care, but a number of us in the outpatient department are working in primary care and have been so in a uh, embedded way uh, up until about two thousand and fifteen and Then we moved away from having our own rooms in in uh, primary care to to basically carrying a phone which we now have what 's called roving PT. And so, because of the growing membership, we needed space. The physicians needed space. We had to give up those treatment rooms there. But because of the, uh, you know, this proximity that you talked about, the familiarity with one another uh, as people that allowed for much better understanding of each other's clinical skills, um, we now are more of a consult serve more of a consultative role. Uh, so, uh, a physician may have the patient in the room they're in medicine. They call up, and then we come next door and address whatever the issues might be, maybe from just uh, everybody's very clear on the diagnosis, tier one first aid kind of things, to the more consultative uh, role of figuring out what the problem is or whether or not the person needs time off work or whether they have, uh, we think that they need an MRI or uh, a referral to orthopedics or a referral into the physical therapy department but um, something we've been doing for quite some time. And, you know, one of the issues that we talked about is, you know, it's the ho- whole idea of PT, you know, this re- revolution of PT in primary care. It's not a new idea. It's been in, you know, some of our APTA documents for a long time. It just hasn't been implemented very well. But uh, the thing different about Kaiser is a ca- this capitated reimbursement system that – you know, you talk about a lot of the barriers, it no longer becomes, you know, the whole, for the region when it developed, it wasn't stirred from a physical therapist uh, drive. It was basically the primary care physicians needed a more sustainable practice. And so, you know, when you talk, it, this, this is a nationwide uh, uh, yeah. problem. Uh, they so,
2: yeah, so, so your point um, seems to, where it seems to, um, actually, converge is. Um, it sounds like the the system has to change before the models change.
9: Yeah.
2: You know, uh, and it has to be, and, and and the and it has to get to the point where because because what you're telling us about Kaiser and it's not dissimilar to what I've heard from other um, uh, places that have much more integrated systems um, is is um, it, it's it's not surprised, but that is not the norm. <laughs> that is not what's out there. You know, and and um, and and I guess the you know, fr- from my perspective, I, I'm not you know integrating PTs is. Not, I agree with you. It's not. It's it's not new. But having doing it is new. Talking about it is not new. But doing it is 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 new. And um, and and it's frustrating to wait. Yeah. Next.
10: Want to uh, emphasize the. Need for the integration uh, from a different model where we have co-location in our um, care but not the integration. One of those environments is the intensive care unit. We have learned that in the intensive care unit our uh, services with patients can decrease time on a ventilator, decrease time in the intensive care unit, Mm -hmm. decrease time in the hospital, and we have good financial modeling that allows us to justify the role of the physical therapist there. So what we've seen is administrators bought in. They said, sure, we need these PTs. And what we don't have working effectively is the integration in those settings because of the traditions that often need to be overcome. And it's not really just the PTs. Mm -hmm. What we know now about uh, quality care involves collaboration among respiratory therapists, pharmacists, uh, anesthesiologists, PTs, etc. So in looking at integration, we need to be disruptive to get there. As a model, Society of Critical Care Medicine's approach has become uh, workshops, two and a half day workshops that bring people together. And the rule for participating is you need at least two people from each environment. We won't train a single person because you need to go back as champions and justify that it is productive time for pts to be involved in the rounds Mm -hmm. and it is valuable time when pts are part of that unit and engaged in the dialogue and it's Mm -hmm. that integration that we need to achieve most important at the 10-year anniversary, I like getting up here and talking about the outcomes and the impact we're having through acute care physical therapy. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah I knew you'd throw that in <laughs> because, well, really, and it's commendable. Um, and, and please understand something: um, I took the, I took, I took the role of the person who didn't think physical therapy had a role in acute care in that debate with Charles Magistro, and um, and people have come to me repeatedly telling me, I mean. I can't believe you did this. Sometimes you take a role just because you have to take a role. You have to take the con role. That was what the debate was about. All right, I'm done. I'm finished justifying myself up here. Um, but but understand. I want you. I want to. I want to go back to one thing, um, and why the term revolution's used. And I just want to. I, 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 Stayed away from statistics, hardcore statistics, but I can't help but repeat something that uh, Dave Elton uh, gave t- t- talked to us about in uh, and at the um, the CoStar symposium, which just preceded this uh, the next conference here. And uh, Dave Elton uh, uh, is it oversees Optum Health. Optum Health has all of the um, uh, the claims data for United Healthcare, the largest. Uh, commercial insurer in the country, okay? And he's talking about the primary care environment, all right, and he's talking about the cost of musculoskeletal care. And he can trace every patient that all the patients that are seen with spine related disorders. And it's just a substantial number. I can't repeat the number off the top of my head because I don't remember it, but it's a lot of patients. And two percent see a therapist. Just think about that for a second okay that that was kind of how we sat back and said this, this something different has to happen here you know from a model standpoint i i i didn 't mean to think that uh, to, to bring in bringing this up that integration doesn 't occur else, you know elsewhere in other specialties and everything it does I know it does and and i I commend the Acute care therapists for their for their success, especially with the mobility programs. I think these things have been tremendously successful out there, and they do take. A, a, maybe there's better. There, there could be more integration, but there's they're already reasonably well integrated. But my God, we just have to do something in this primary care environment. That that seems to me to be a key. Go ahead. So my name's Peter
11: Panis, and I'm at East Tennessee State University, and I'm a, probably a little bit different. I'm actually a professor in a College of Pharmacy, and I'm a physical therapist, too. So I'll ask my question first, and then I'll try to keep my dialogue short. So the question is, why are we not following this model? And the model I'd like to suggest is the pharmacist model, because when we first started a pharmacy school at my university, the pharmacists really weren't doing that much with the physicians. Now. Every time every physician group that, that has rounds, there's pharmacist faculty there and there are pharmacy students there. Every time a new practice sets up that's associated with the university, there is a there is a pharmacist at that practice. And so if if that's what we're looking at, we should be looking at the pharmacy model. If you want to look at something, go on to Wikipedia. There's something called medical therapy management that's the pharmacist term for this it's mtm if you go on the wikipedia i don't see anything about physical therapy management there so we you need to kind of carve out an area and why aren't we following
2: that model well i i think um i can try to adjust it um uh I don't think it's. First of all, I don't know how widespread that model is. Um, I know in our primary care clinics we don't have pharmacists in the clinics. Um, We tried putting pharmacists in the clinic, you know, at one point in time, and it wasn't an issue of value. They clearly demonstrated the value. It was an issue of who pays for the pharmacist. That was what the issue was. Primary care didn't pony up for that. What's? I'm sorry. It, it it you know what it it for whatever reason, it wasn't something that the primary care physicians were willing to to to, uh, to do, in spite of the fact I'll tell you this that um, we had models that uh, that we had uh, I was familiar with um, uh, pilot models where our integrated payer wanted to put pharmacists in primary care, and it worked wonderfully. It worked exactly how it was supposed to work. But what our integrated payer didn't want to do is pay for care for subscribers of other insurance products. And what our providers didn't want to do was only treat subscribers of the integrated payer and treat them differently than the, than the subscribers from other places. That's just a small example of a good idea that's that's clearly valuable, right, but you couldn't, we couldn't get over these obstacles of who's going to pay and how is it going to be implemented. It's a, just a, a, an example of that. Rob, you, anybody else? Okay,
5: I think. Well, I, I think that um, having looked at these models before, I'm trying to recall, but you know, several years ago, there, you know, the terms of the patient-centered medical home uh, came up and has been a movement of in primary care. And in that has been behavioral health and also pharmacy has been part of that movement towards a patient-centered medical home. But physical therapy wasn't part of that home. They were in the neighborhood um, because, and that's a, a true term, it's the neighborhood, but um, because they're a specialist and they're considered outside the home. but And I'm not saying that's the only reason, But because there's so many different models. I mean, we have models for older adults. We have models for different disciplines, but... Um, when, when that happened um, as part of that movement, and it's been involved in the VA and so forth, but um, that may be one reason they had much more support during that, that movement towards the patient center medical home several years ago, many years ago. Probably.
7: Linda. Hi, Tony. I am an administrator for a rehab service in a hospital around the corner here, and I'm, what I'm hearing now is follow the money. And we're working in a very ugly healthcare system that is a morass of conflicting incentives and disincentives. And so when my primary care practice over here is doing an ACO, it makes sense that we put a therapist over there and they work out uh, workflows so that... The gatekeeper for musculoskeletal care is the physical therapist, and the front desk knows how to get that patient to that element because we can save money and get better outcomes and do it that way. But when that practice over there is getting more fee-for-service, we have to shift gears and we have to do this. And right now, that ongoing, uncertain – Environment that is exclusively set up to essentially put us all at each other's back for that little piece of pie that's getting smaller and smaller while the utilization review people and the insurance companies, especially the the for-profit ones, are getting fatter. We're sort of stuck with working very hard at working around those obstacles. So I have to know whether or not that clinic over there is a hospital licensed clinic, and I can put a therapist there and we can bill under the hospital license and do it. And that one over there is a PO, and should we talk about having that therapist become in, uh, bill incident to that physician's practice? But if we could do one thing, we should eliminate the expectation that physical therapy is always measured by productivity. And we should start to align to what Robert Kaplan and Michael Porter and Clay Christensen are talking about, which is value-driven health care. And if, if we can't get rid of productivity, we should at least add the cost of getting a specific and measurable outcome so that we can make better decisions about whether or not we should put resources into overcoming that obstacle because that's a PO over there or this obstacle over there because they're, they're, they're feeding off the um, fee-for-service golden calf. And until unless we get to a system that sort of is aligned to all of the same positive val- uh, objectives and is really committed to a value-driven, outcome-measured system, we just have to learn how to figure out the workarounds for all of these road, bu- uh, all of these speed bumps. We try to do it at Brigham and Women's, and we get little pockets pockets of success here and there. And the the issue that we have to commit to doing. Is getting this evidence out there and getting the data there so we can help inform the policies that will help keep us away from just ongoing morass of incentives and disincentives competing with each other. And and that's really all I have to say.
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh... One more question. Go ahead.
12: Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Smith local in Boston here, and something I've done, I worked uh, 13 years now. Uh, the last six years before going into private practice, I managed a community-based um, outpatient physical therapy facility. Um, Dr. Saper, know you well. Um, and it's something where I started to have good relationships with some of the physicians that were in the building. Uh, those relationships turned into me taking their residence down for eight hours, two, four-hour shifts over the course of the time they spent in the community clinic. Uh, We then, or I worked with one of the nurse practitioners I know really well, and we were able to apply, get her a grant to come down and spend uh, 16 hours a week with me. Um, The grant money was used to reimburse the facility for her salary that would allow us to spend the time together, and collaborating over that amount of time was awesome. We were able to really see some difficult patients. Um, it was it It made a lot of difference for the patients. It made a lot of difference in what we know about each other's professions as well. So in terms of a starting point, do third year PT students necessarily have the ability to spend eight hours, sixteen hours, do a small integrated clinical in a primary care setting that would allow at least the start of an exchange of knowledge, and or is there grant money out there to allow a physical therapist who is interested in pursuing this to cover the cost of their salary to be in with a physician they know pretty well and actually see if this will work out. Um, It's got to start somewhere. We seem like we have really big ideas and everyone's talking huge, but how do we start the integration? And that's really kind of what I want to say. (laughs)
2: Well, um, I, I think the answer to your question is uh, I think there, there uh, are opportunities in underserved areas to to set those models up where people can do it and and um, and, and at least get a handle on whether or not the, the feasibility of it as well as uh, uh, the the uh, uh, effectiveness of it so I, I do think that they, there are models that can be set up, and there are probably funding mechanisms for those types of things. So um I, I we're coming to a close. Um I I didn't expect to uh lead the revolution. Um <laughs> but but um I, I will tell you this. I hope if you get anything out of this, it, it's um how um good ideas, how evidence based ideas, um it it's not it's not um education, guys. <laughs> you know, uh, primary care physicians don't do what they do because of you know uh, they don't order opioids because of lack of education. You know, it's not like uh, you know we can go teach them to do literature searches and everybody will do well. It's the same with PTS. It, it truly is an implementation issue. And what you've heard out of this are the barriers to implementing what could be a pretty good idea, at least from everybody's perspective. Even when you have you know pretty good evidence that we're going down the right path. In management and in integrated management, even when you hear from the experts in the field that this would be something good, we ought to do this. Um, You you see the barriers that are in place, and implementation is really the identifying barriers and overcoming barriers, and how I think uh, the the future, the next you know five years of what we do in PT is really going to be how how successful we are in implementation. That's really what the key is going to be. And, um, and it's, 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 the answer is not trying to educate one another. We're, we're past that phase. So thanks, everyone.
0: This is an APTA podcast.